Welcome to Purpose Inc., the podcast where we discuss corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. I'm your host, Michael Young. In order for companies to be effective change agents and deliver on sustainability goals, whether they be internal ESG targets, Paris Climate, UN SDGs, change is necessary. Corporations must forge deeper and more productive relationships with their stakeholders to become change agents. And my guest today, Eric Wogelmuth, the Chief Operating Officer of Future 500, is here to talk about how that needs to happen and the work that they do in order to help corporations find innovative systemic solutions that enable our planet and our society to thrive. Future 500 is a nonprofit consultancy that builds trust between companies, advocacy groups, investors, and philanthropists to advance business as a force for good. Eric earned his MBA from the Yale School of Management. He also holds a master's in environmental management from Yale and the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He also has a BA in history from Yale. And Eric and I talk about Future 500's Force for Good forecast, which, if you're not aware of it, and I'll link it in the show notes, is a an authoritative and compelling body of research and analysis on the top issues, trends, topics, and indeed flashpoints in ESG that are going to shape engagement between corporations and stakeholders in the coming years. And we recorded this in, uh, obviously, COVID uh, had already happened, and that is a big part of that report. But we recorded this the week that the Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations were taking place in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. And so that isn't reflected in that research report, but it most certainly will be in the future. Uh, and and Eric and I do get into the role of corporate, the role corporations must play in responding to racial injustice, particularly the connection between employees and activists, which is already a trend uh, that Eric and his team are seeing, as well as intergenerational change with Gen Z rising up and taking control. And companies are ultimately going to be calling consumers to action around racial injustice and vice versa. Um, so we're going to see a lot about that in uh, in the future. And, and um, so we do get into that uh, a bit, but at, at the end, um, and I'm, um, I'm going to be doing a lot more on the topic of corporate action around and racial justice in coming episodes. So here today, without further ado, my conversation with Eric Wogelmuth of Future 500. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Michael, thank you for inviting me and for the opportunity to talk virtually with you today. I, I hope we get to meet in person sometime in the near future. Excellent. Eric, so maybe just give our listeners uh, a quick snapshot of your background and then a quick history of Future 500 and where the organization comes from and and how it fits into the purpose, sustainable capitalism landscape. Sure. Um, 
I guess a little about me. I, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and was truly an urbanite who didn't learn to drive until my my mid twenties. Loved the subway, and uh, growing up, I, I loved the mosaic of, of racial and socioeconomic diversity in New York. And I was planning to go off to college, return home, and be a Wall Street trader for the rest of my life, like my father and his father. You know, like. But then I graduated during a recession, and and I kind of quickly came became disillusioned with the grind of the the corporate world. So I like to joke that I, I had a midlife crisis at twenty four. Um, so I saved some money. I, I quit my job, learned to drive, uh, bought my first car, and I took off cross country. And I, I headed to California to go to Whitewater River Guide School. My uh, my friends who you know used to call me Urban Eric thought I was nuts, and my family, particularly my mom, were was supportive. And uh, and in college, I'd majored in American history with a focus on the settlement of the West. And I'd been influenced by professors like Bill Cronin. He authored a great book called Changes in the Land. And it laid out the industrial development of the American West. So as I was driving to California, I was enraptured with the majestic landscapes unfolding around me and how they'd been you know, kind of bisect, dissected or cut up by uh, development. And I, and I didn't know it then, but I was about to find my life's purpose and change my trajectory. So I spent three years working as a river guide and a ski bum in the winter. And it was predominantly a rural existence, and I, and I loved it. I became enamored with the outdoors and impassioned about the environment. And I'd come home for holidays criticizing American consumption and corporations for destroying the environment. My father, who abhorred littering and helped establish one of Brooklyn's first recycling centers, was wholly unimpressed with me. <laughs> he said, hmm. now I can channel his kind of smoker's uh, voice, but he's like, kid, you sound like the prophet of a new religion. You don't know anything about business. So uh, he said, go get a business degree, and then we can have an informed discussion. So I, you know, like most kids, I ignored him for a while, but eventually his wisdom sunk in. And it was the beginning of a, a socially responsible business movement with the likes of Body Shop, Stonyfield Farms, and, and socially responsible investment with folks like Amy Dominey. So I was having a lot of inspiration from these folks. And Paul Hawkins, Ecology of Commerce, had just come out, and I read that, and William McDonough's Declaration of Interdependence. So I was realizing, realizing that corporations are part of the problem, but they could also be a major part of the solution. So I did go back to school, got an MBA, master's in environmental management. And after a stint in environmental management consulting and at an environmental tech startup in the early days of the dot-com era, mobilizing online campaigns targeting companies, I landed at Future 500. And it's a place that's really allowed me to apply my academic training and really realize my, my career aspirations. So that's a guess a segue to Future 500. It's a 25-year-old nonprofit consultancy this year with a mission to build bridges between corporations, advocates, investors, and philanthropists to advance business as a force for good. You know, our team, we're experts in stakeholder engagement, and we're expert generalists on social and environmental sustainability. So at a high level, we help companies in two primary ways. First, we help companies get aligned internally across functions to embed sustainability into a company's core business strategy. And second, we help companies engage externally with critical stakeholders who are influencing social and environmental issues that are financially <clears throat> material to a company. So our origin story was, our organization was formed out of helping resolve a, a conflict between Mitsubishi Corporation and a network of environmental groups led by Randy Hayes and Rainforest Action Network. Mitsubishi Forestry was destroying old growth forest in Malaysia, and the company was ignoring Randy's, uh, uh, you know, uh, overtures to talk. So to get their attention, they they organized public or to get their attention. Rainforest Action Network organized public corporate campaigns against Mitsubishi Corporation's other better known consumer facing businesses. So they showed up at auto shows and locked themselves in Mitsubishi cars. 
They unfurled large banners outside of Mitsubishi's Union Bank in California, <clears throat> and they picketed outside of Mitsubishi USA's electronics stores. And this got the attention of the CEO of Mitsubishi Electric USA, whose name is Tachi Kayuchi. And Tachi realized this was bad for business. It was turning off customers and employees. So he hired Bill Shireman, our founder, to help him engage Randy and company. And they traveled to the rainforest together to see the problem firsthand. And Tachi was, was moved and eventually forged an agreement with uh, Rainforest Action Network to discontinue sourcing wood products from endangered and old growth forests. And as part of the agreement, they committed to a sourcing preference for Forest Stewardship Council or FSC certified <clears throat> wood. FSC was in its infancy then, so this really helped spur market demand for certified um, forest commodities. And eventually, hundreds of companies signed on to similar or more stringent agreements, and this helped change demand patterns and reduce pressure on some threatened old growth and endangered forests. So Tachi retired, he led he, and that led he and Bill to found Future 500. Tachi in Japan, Bill in the U.S., and they saw a need for experts to inhabit the middle and help forge the common ground that moves party at odds from conflict to collaboration on advancing systemic solutions. So as one of our board members likes to say, we were depolarizers before, <clears throat> sorry about that, depolarizers before that term was, was cache. So today, thankfully, sustainability and stakeholder engagement's mainstreamed. Companies want to lean, on, lean in on sustainability, and they're doing so in response to pressure and changing societal expectations on so many stakeholder fronts, from NGOs, from investors, employees, consumers, communities where they operate, and policymakers at all levels of government. And this is a, you know, really a welcome to change because it enables our team to have more impact influencing companies positively, but also for companies to have more of a positive impact on society as they move more from a reactive posture to a proactive one. So hopefully I hope that wasn't too long. <clears throat> no, that was fantastic. Low battery. And, Low battery. And, oh. There you go. One of my low my, battery. One of my pieces of technology is talking to me. I'm going to uh, take one second to throw it out of the room. No problem. I am back. Forgive me. Cool. No problem. Absolutely. So that <clears throat> talk a little bit more about the theory of change, because I think that's an area where, and I think you were touching on it within your your initial explanation of Future 500 and how you approach and depolarize corporate interests and those of society broadly. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. You know, we, we, um, there's something that we, uh, like to call the Greenpeace Walmart effect. And this really emerged from the Rainforest Action Network Mitsubishi, uh, conflict. And that is really where you have the advocacy community raising awareness of an issue. And they go after well known brands, companies who's, um, really protective of their brand reputation, um, to get them to commit to things and then drive that commitment through their supply chain. And this is a way to really affect not just what happens within a company's four walls, but really what happens across the entire uh, business value chain. And so this is a way to really get to more systemically solving problems um, across geographies. Now you can debate whether this is a, a form of, of um, uh, colonial capitalism. Um, and there's been definitely changes in the model over the years uh, by different campaigning groups like Greenpeace um, to be more thoughtful 
and adaptable to what happens on in different countries around the world, what's culturally appropriate. So first world standards need to be applied in different ways in different parts of the world. Um, but what we do is we really try to harness that tension between the advocacy community and companies to treat, to see where there is common ground um, and dry, and help get more and more companies to sign on to similar types of agreement. So we often will be pointing companies to where we think leadership looks like and trying to connect them to the right stakeholders to see if they can we can head off conflict and uh, have them drive these changes proactively. And thankfully, we're having a lot, a lot more of those uh, mm. boardroom discussions are happening today than they used to. Yeah, yeah. All right, I want to, <clears throat> I want to drop into your Force for Good report and mm-hmm. and ask you to unpack that for us, the key trends and the ideas that are in that, and um, you know, just kind of walk us through the the big tent poles and pillars on that. Sure, sure. It's uh, I, I always find it's a little helpful to provide some some context on how we create the report. Um, each year, our team convenes around Thanksgiving to pool our expertise uh, we, to identify the top ESG trends that we anticipate are going to shape engagement between corporations and external stakeholders in the coming years. And so, to arrive at our predictions, we look at trends in advocacy, philanthropy, investing, and politics, and then we poll thought leaders in our network for their insights. And it's a really fun and, and challenging exercise. And our 2020 forecast is our ninth annual trends report. We've gotten pretty good at this. Uh, we're helping leaders kind of see around the corner on issues such as plastic, environmental justice, diversity and inclusion, and zero deforestation. Uh, for example, we highlighted the, highlighted the issues like plastic pollution four years ago. Same thing with DNI and environmental justice before they really exploded onto the mainstream. And it's a great way for us to signal to companies, but also to the advocacy community that we see that this issue is really going to grow and scale. And, and we invite people to want to engage and connect on these issues before they um, become more of a problem, if you will. So each of these, each of the 10 topics in our report is we could spend an entire podcast on. So I'll, I'll touch on a few. And if you know people want to read the report and view the team's webinar, where we really unpack the issues in more detail, you can go to future500.org slash forecast. Um, yeah, and, and Eric, I'll link that all in the show notes. Okay, great. So since we uh, first drafted the report, of course, the pandemic hit, and now we have the, a reckoning due to the murder of George Floyd. So I'll try to contextualize how these events might influence the issues that we have in the report. Um, kind of at a high level, how companies large and small respond to the COVID crisis and the murder of George Floyd is going to be a defining moment. And it's going to be remembered for years particularly in the younger generation. And as you know, there's a, we're in a world of immediate transparency and deep polarization. So companies got to tread carefully as missteps are going to shine a spotlight on their purpose and how their company's leadership upholds that purpose. And I'll talk a bit about that. Um, some key questions as you think about the issues are how are companies' treatment and engagement of their employees and customers? Will that, how will that influence loyalty, productivity, and a company's reputation for years to come, and will investors focus on ESG reporting and transparency continue to rise, and will scrutiny of corporate influence on politics increase? So I'm going to talk about those. Uh, employee activism is, is one trend that we've been tracking and is in the report, um, and it really is the evolution of employees as activists, uh, which we've been closely following. Uh, tech workers became kind of the vanguard of employee agitation on ESG issues, including climate change, gun sales sexual harassment policies and controversial government governmental contracts. Um, and social media has been a real critical tool for the rapid mobilization 
of employee activism on petitions and walkouts and the coordination of shareholder resolutions um, targeting uh, corporate leadership. So it's a critical situation we're in now as uh, with COVID has only strengthened employer campaigner collaboration. And there's a coalition of tech, tech workers voice support for Amazon's warehouse protesters. And soon after campaigners like United for Respect were advocating on behalf of workers. The pandemic's also propel, propelled the voices of more traditional labor stakeholders like unions into the conversation. So for example, recent fast food worker protests have been supported by Fight for 15, the minimum wage focused union. So that's uh, hopefully that gives you a little sense of employee activism, particularly now that COVID has, has uh, emerged. Mm. And, and Eric, I just wanted to maybe double click on that as mm-hmm. it relates to George Floyd. Yeah. And those, so COVID is, was one asteroid strike and now we have another one societally. And I, I just want your thoughts on, on, and I, and you shared your, your blog post and this, this, this episode will come out after your blog post. Mm-hmm. Uh, is published, but I, I I just wanted to. We've all seen <clears throat> companies stop and take a moment around Black Lives Matter and 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 declare their support for for the end of systemic racism. Give us your thoughts if you've got them yet on on how that is going to impact this employee activist connection. And the youth rising piece, which I think is another dimension to this, because yes. there's zero tolerance <laughs> yep. at, at Gen Z, right? 0.0 yeah. is yeah. how they measure it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and that was the next issue I was going to dive into. It's, uh, yeah. No, you, you raised, you know, these are really challenging issues. Our team has been deliberating, you know, you know, over our privilege as an organization, as a predominantly, as an, as an entirely white organization. Um, and what, what is our role in society in terms of how can we really lean in and leverage our privilege to, to impact this issue? Um, I think uh, you, you touched on COVID, which really was shining a spotlight on the wealth uh, race gap. And then this murder has certainly uh, shined a very harsh spotlight on institutional racism and systemic inequality. And I think uh, the issue of employee activism is now, you know, is really charged. COVID kind of created a lot of tinder and the George Floyd murder really lit the match. And um, and I think there's, there's really no going back and companies are coming out with statements of solidarity and that's all well and good. Um, and they, you know, people need white allies to really rise up here but it's really going to be aligning tone and deed and the actions that companies take with their employees, uh, with their consumers, and in the halls of government and in boardrooms. So that's where we're going to be moving as a team and trying to use our access at in corporate boardrooms uh, and in the advocacy and funding networks to really try to elevate this conversation in a significant way. Got it. Okay. Let's keep so, rolling. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me uh, dive into Youth Rising Up, which is also yeah. a, a really good issue. Um, you know, we've seen this uh, unfold spectacularly in, the, in our own backyards over the last year. And you, youth activists have had, you know, immense success in elevating climate and social issues in, in public discourse. Today's youth movement's louder, it's more urgent, and more capable of waging an information campaign on social media than any of its predecessors. So it's really important for companies to understand 
um, use theory of change and expectations because their discontent with the status quo is is definitely a sign of what's to come. Um, as my my niece, who's one of the lead climate advocates and um, activists in New York, and has uh, been marching um, with uh, the protesters for, around George Floyd, you know, she says, "Look, we're the leaders of the future. We're going to be voters. We're going to be workers. We're going to be consumers, and we have nothing to lose. Um, so we're going to be out here in the streets, and we're we're going to be judging you, and we're angry. We're very angry. So it's uh, I get a little teary eyed because I'm proud of her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah." Um, but uh, in the U.S., the, the focus of many of these groups has really been on uh, political mobilization. So it's not 100% clear what what role they see the private sector playing and how they're going to engage with business. But we've already seen activist stage protests on Wall Street and at a number of different corporate headquarters. So there's plenty of indication that they're going to use different leverage points like civil disobedience um, to, to uh, affect change. And many are calling this a systemic problem whether it's climate change or whether it's uh, racial inequality. So we could also see activists pushing business to move from action to advocacy and use their political influence, which I've, I've touched on and we'll, we'll touch on in some of the other issues to come. Should I keep Good. going? Yeah, right. please, okay. please. I want to please, see if you had a question no, on that. No, no, no. Roll through. Keep going. Got it. Got it. So uh, the next issue is co- companies are calling customers to action. Um, and this issue is essentially an evolution of brands taking stands trend, which we've highlighted in prior reports. And it's been highlighted by a lot of academics in recent years. We, we did a webinar last year with a Harvard Business School professor named Michael Toffel, um, who had um, done a report on CEO activism. So this is really uh, uh, entering uh, the mindset of corporate leadership. And uh, it's kind of a sibling trend to the employee activism one I just talked about. So first... You know, we think about brands had to figure out kind of what do they stand for. And now they, they started sharing that with their customers. So they're saying, this is what we care about. Isn't that great? Uh, but they're now realizing that's really not enough. Um, if they want to earn the loyalty of values-driven consumers and, and youth activism activists, they can't just talk about how great they are. They, they need to be offering something uh, distinctly more tangible to their consumers who are often feeling helpless or, or disempowered. They're craving solutions on big topics like climate change. So brands are beginning to say, this is what we care about. And if you care about this too, here are some ways we can take action together. So this isn't just about customer loyalty. They're, they're realizing, companies realize they can't tackle these systemic issues by themselves um, and let alone achieve their bold sustainability goals. Uh, uh, they have so many 2050 goals and many of them are 2020 goals, and many of them are going to fall short of them. So they, they need an army. And so they're looking to their customers as potential allies on things like policy change and societal behavioral shifts. So a couple of examples that we look to, like, for example, Gillette's campaign about how to be a better man in response to the, the Women's March um, and raising a, a spotlight on the need for men to be allies uh, to women when they're faced with uh, gender discrimination uh, and misogyny. And more recently, um, one we're looking at just came out, of course, on the murder of George Floyd is Reebok's campaign where they say, we're not asking you to buy our shoes. We're asking you to walk on someone else's. So that's uh, we'll see how that unfolds and how that's interpreted by the campaigning community out there. Uh, another issue is, uh, and you, you and I talked about this with some of our earlier calls, is, is ESG investing taking over Wall Street. And you know, what we, we've seen is, you know, we really do look at uh, big, passive, mainstream investors now as almost the new regulators. Um, 
our team is, I guess a little context, our team's long tracked the priorities of socially responsible investors as indicators or bellwethers for what mainstream Wall Street investors will ultimately integrate into their investment models. So it's really not surprising today that you see mainstream passive investors in, you know, increasingly integrating ESG screens into their financial models and their product offerings. And this increase is due to several factors, but I think the biggest driver is just growing interest among institutional and high net worth investors who are seeking lower risk portfolios. And ESG screen funds really have tended to provide this. And COVID-19 and the sharp drop in the market suggest this trend's only going to accelerate. Those, those um, investments with more active ESG screens have performed better in the market downturn than non-ESG funds. So the acceleration in capital going to those types of funds is going to now, I think, increase dramatically. Um, but also, investors are feeling the same pressure from their employees, from youth, from activists to take stands on issues. So there's four key stakeholder types we watch around this is SRIs, as I mentioned, more activists, it, you know, who are, except, let me back up, SRIs are really the bellwethers, but then there's act, activist institutional investors like Norges Bank out of Norway and State Street, who are kind of fast followers. Then you look at the coalitions like Climate Action 100 that really elevate investors' expectations on particular issues. And then activist groups like Stand on Earth and Mighty, who are really helping coordinate NGOs and investors and in campaigns that are targeting Wall Street firms like BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase, kind of to cultivate this virtual race to the top. You know, we talked about the business roundtable and the statement of purpose. I think a lot of these things, a lot of the stakeholders I just mentioned, really were helping to kind of create the the, the conditions for that statement to come out. So, I guess to summarize this issue, which I think is a really important one. Um, investors of all types are increasingly expecting more robust ESG disclosure and transparency by companies, and our team is doing a lot of work there. ESG integration is going to continue spreading across asset classes, and this is really interesting because there's been a notable pivot by hedge funds into ESG in the past couple of years. Uh, so it's definitely spreading across asset classes and approaches, and we expect a lot more activist campaigns targeting investors and banks as regulators, really, to try to hold companies to account because, particularly in the U.S., there's a lot of, there basically is no, uh, there's limited regulatory enforcement happening right now in the eyes of many. Yeah. yeah. I suspect yeah. you may have questions about you know, that because you talked a lot about that with well, me before. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe if we could just think in ter- contextually now, especially around the S in ESG and, and, and go back to some of the top, you know, the, the things we were talking about a moment ago with COVID and the murder of George Floyd, how, because S is, has, has seemed to be the, 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 maybe the softer and the least measurable of the, of the three. And how do you think that is social impact? How is that going to be looked at in the future, and do you think COVID and George Floyd are gonna are going to impact disclosures around DNI? And and I was just um, I just booked onto the podcast Allison Taylor mm-hmm. from Ethical Systems at the Stern School in New York. Great, and yeah, and she wrote an article which caught my eye about. <clears throat> Corporate responsibility, it was titled The Corporate Responsibility Facade is Starting to Crumble. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just get your thoughts, if you've got them, around this. You you mentioned tone in action. 
mm-hmm. as a sort of duality. How will statements that corporations make and then the actions that they take and indeed the lobbying, because that's another one of your topics, maybe mm-hmm. we could drop into now transparency is coming to lobbying and that now they're, the circle is being closed. Right. Right. Between the sustainability report, the purpose statement, the ESG disclosures, what what marketing brand and indeed advertising are saying and now lobbying. And how how do you all think about that? And I know that's a very kind of discursive question, but how do you where do you all how do you all look at lobbying in particular? Right. Well, you, yeah, you're anticipating the next issue I was going to talk about. I think when you talk about the S, we often talk about intersectionality. And uh, a lot of these issues are really converging. And the groups that have been advancing these issues are also beginning to align and converge. And I, you know, I talked on some of the examples where unions are starting to weigh in on things in climate when you talk about the climate movement, which is a predominantly white movement until very recently, it's really now about a just transition and climate justice. And as it relates to investors, they are really you know, recognizing that human capital is, is essential to um, positive returns for shareholders. And so there's a real sense of elevating that. DNI is it's, it's, sharp, it's hard to show the materiality of that. And I think that's where investors are really struggling because it is softer, as you say. But there is a lot of very smart investors really looking at that very closely in terms of metrics around employee morale, um, employee empowerment. Um, and there are ways in which I think there's quietly happening on shareholder calls where they're really able to get a sense of corporate culture and how it's changing to help uh, inform their investment approaches. So. It's just a little background there um, on that. So let's talk about uh, lobbying, uh, which is, um, you know, we're about to <laughs> hit the most charged uh, and expensive political election in U.S. history. And, uh, and certainly political transparency is under increasing scrutiny by all the stakeholders, whether it's advocates and, or investors. So we're seeing more stakeholders criticize companies whose public commitments aren't aligned with their political contributions or their lobbying. This is a key way in which Companies are held to account for aligning their tone and their de- with their deeds. Um, we've seen investors particularly pointing to this as a significant reputational risk, and hence uh, a potential will, will, will tamp down shareholder value. And they've been publicly calling on companies increasingly to disclose their political spending and to review their membership and trade associations that are promoting agendas at odds with their stated goals. We've seen a number of companies respond to this public pressure. You know, B, companies like BP and Equinor and Total and Shell have all left industry groups because of their stance on climate policy. Companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi broke ties with the Plastic Industry Association, as did SC Johnson. And hundreds of companies have left Alec in the last few years. So there's there's a lot of pressure on these companies to align tone and deed. Uh, Nestle is another company that pulled out of every single association that they were members of, saving them a lot of money. But they then aligned with other uh, brands, like-minded brands, like Mars and Unilever, and what's uh, called, I think, the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance. And it basically freed them up to to really align tone and deed and, and advance their collective goals together around uh, sustainability uh, goals. So it's, but it's not just uh, investors and the others. It's, uh, it's watchdog groups like Center for Political Accountability, 
and another group called Influence Map, among others, who are really analyzing lobbying registries and public databases to connect the dots. So companies can't count on their political activity to remain secret anymore. You know, advances in AI are making information very, very accessible uh, to the the advocacy community. So because of this increased transparency, employees now and customers are becoming less tolerant on what they perceive as hypocrisy on this issue. And then you see groups like Bill Weil, uh, who used to be the head of sustainability at um, Facebook, launching new organizations. This one's called Climate Voice to really um, mobilize uh, employees at companies around uh, advocacy on issue. There's issues. They're starting with um, climate as a key issue, uh, but I suspect that over time, if they prove successful, they'll shift into other issues as well. So this is a really, it's going to be fascinating to watch this issue unfold in the next uh, several months uh, as we approach this election. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the, the convergence of a lot of things, and as you were talking about um, culture, you know, this goes back to a new generation of employees being recruited and there's no, it, it becomes a talent issue. Right. And how do, how do you recruit the best and the brightest if they look and can see very plainly what's going on? And, and, and that becomes then a, uh, uh that then it becomes material. Yes. Right. And I think that's how we, we, we can see that jump from, well, this is a nice initiative to this is actually a potential risk factor to the organization because we're not going to be able to recruit in the future. Right. And if so, you, yeah. and if you do it really well, it's a competitive advantage. Correct. Correct. Yeah. If you, if you align those things. All right. So, uh, final thoughts from today. This has been an amazing 30 minutes, Eric, I feel. <laughs> and I agree. We, I think we could, we are going to have to come back in, in season two with you and just keep, looking at these issues and unpacking them. Uh, but any, any final thoughts for us as we wrap up here? Yeah, well, really appreciate it. The time has, has certainly flown, flown by. I guess, you know, one parting thought is I do, do really think corporations are uniquely positioned to lead, uh, particularly in the United States right now where we have a vacuum in, in uh, regulatory and governmental leadership. Um, you know, companies have, you know, the resources, human, financial, intellectual, They've got these global footprints and market incentives to grow their assets by taking on, you know, society's big, hairy, audacious problems. And, and what we see is when companies collaborate across sectors, they can more rapidly scale systemic solutions. So, you know, helping emerging economies leapfrog past development channels with things like cell phones and renewable energy is, is classy examples. Um, or even more currently, the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, you know, these are not corporate efforts are not panaceas. They can leverage the supply chain. And if, um, but this is where civil society can, I think also, and must play a critical role in helping companies on this journey, but also holding them accountable for aligning tone and deed as we've, as we've talked about, particularly in areas where the rule of law and governmental oversight is, is really weak. So, um, you know, I'm optimistic that companies can, can lean in on this and that I, Really pleased that more advocates uh, across stakeholder types are are uh, going into boardrooms with these companies now to to dive in on these issues. So, I guess that'll be my my parting thought for today. Fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. 
The Purposing Podcast is a production of Actual Agency, helping innovators communicate in a changing world. More at www.actual.agency.